Were you blessed with the teaching on worship last week? Are you ready for this week? I think it's going to be exciting. I want to share something that's really uh, exciting and, and, and really uh, excite me. And I'm going to invite you now to bow with me, and we're going to pray and then commit this time of teaching to the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, thank you for the great joy this morning of being able to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you that we can come just with exuberant praise and extravagant worship because you are worthy of it all. And I pray that this morning as we continue to dive deeper into your word and to understand what worship is in the unseen realm, we pray that Lord Jesus, you, you continue to inspire us so that we will build a worship culture that is intense, that is true and authentic and yet Every time we worship you, something happens in the spiritual realm and you cause heaven to open and you come and encounter us each time. So we commit this time of teaching now to you. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. Now, would you, um, you know, do you realize that when you became a Christian, you were enlisted into an army? The day when you became a Christian, you were enlisted into an army. You are not just a servant of God, but you are a soldier of the cross. And as a soldier, we have engaged a new enemy. See, and you and I have, don't just have a Christian walk, but we actually have a Christian warfare. And this war is real, and this war is ongoing. But the good news I have for you is this, that God has given us weapons that are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And we have been given weapons that are not of this world. And 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 to verse 4, talks about this. The Apostle Paul said this, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 and 4, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. But the weapons we fight with, they are not the weapons of the world, but on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. See, we have weapons that are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And one of the most powerful weapons that we possess, brothers and sisters, this morning is the weapon of praise and worship. Praise and worship is a powerful weapon in the hands of the believer. And one of the best examples of the power of praise and worship in times of warfare is recorded for us in the Old Testament passage in 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, where we actually see faith-filled worship routing the enemy's camp and plundering them. Okay, so this morning, I want to begin by reading snippets of that amazing um, uh, uh, incident out of Second Chronicles 20. So if you have your Bibles, would you go there with me? I'm going to read snippets of it from there. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Okay, let's go there. Second Chron uh, Chronicles chapter 20. I'm going to start reading from verse 1 and to, to verse 7 and then another portion of it and then we will go, we will go into this. You ready? Second Chronicles chapter 20 verse 1. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Meonites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. And some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already in Hazazon Tamar, that is Engadi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. And the people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. And then when all the people came, uh, Jehoshaphat prayed an amazing prayer. And after the prayer, you find in verse 13 now. Let's go down to verse 13, and I'll read this for you. All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, stood there before the Lord. And then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Zeel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite, and a descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. And then he said this, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Zuriel. 
and you will not have to fight this battle, but take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, but go out to face them tomorrow and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. And then some Levites and the Kohathites and the Korolites, they stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. And as they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and the people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness. As they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. And as they began to sing in praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Amnon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The Ammonites and the Moabites rose up against the men of Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. But after they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. And when the men of Judah came to the place that overlooked the desert and looked towards the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. So Jehoshaphat and his men went on to carry out their plunder, and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing, and also articles of value, more than they could take away. There was so much plunder that it took three days to collect it. And on the fourth day, they assembled in the Valley of Barakah. There they praised the Lord. And that is why it is called the Valley of Barakah to this day. Then, led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem, for the Lord has given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. And they entered Jerusalem, went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lyres and trumpets, and the fear of the Lord came on all the surrounding kingdoms when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God has given him rest on every side. What an amazing story. You know, the King Jehoshaphat was a godly king who feared the Lord. The word Jehoshaphat actually means Jehovah has judged. Jehovah has judged. In king Jehoshaphat, if you read his story, he was the one whom God used to remove idolatry from Judah. He was the one who appointed godly judges in the land. And he was the one who introduced religious education to the people. But now in 2 Chronicles 20, he is surrounded by a combined army of the Moabites, the Ammonites, and some Meonites. And the people of Israel was totally outnumbered. They were totally overpowered. And instantly, they were at war. Okay? And the, the next thing, the, one moment they were in peace, next moment they are at war. And we can all identify with moments like this in our life, when the enemy suddenly come in like a flood against us. One moment it was calm, the next it was chaos. One moment it was uh, serenity, the next there was stress. One moment there was peace, the next there is pressure. And we all go through moments like that. So what did Jehoshaphat do in a time like this? Even though he was afraid, the Bible tells us that he sought God and he called the people to prayer and to fasting. So you find in verse 3, this is what he says, Alarm, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord and he proclaimed a fast from all Judah. And that's exactly what they did. Verse 13 then tells us, All the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. Can you picture this? All the people of God. Men, women, children, infants, they were all standing before the presence of their God in a posture of total dependence. I can assure you that none of them had, were offering any suggestion. They really don't know what to do. No one was trying to use their social connections or, or trying to seek to do anything. They were just totally dependent. In fact, they were helpless uh, in, in the words of Jehoshaphat, he declared in verse 12, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Have you ever been in moments in your life where you really don't know what to do? 
situations, circumstances that suddenly come and we really don't know what to do. And all we can say is, Lord, our eyes are upon you. And that is why the, what happened was, and when you, when you stand in a posture of utter weakness, that is when God becomes our strength. And it is in this posture of weakness that it invites the supernatural intervention of God in our life. And this is what happened. The people of Israel standing before God, they were saying to the Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And then the next verse tell us this in verse 14. Listen to this. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Zahaziel, a Levite, and a descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. Now, isn't it interesting, brothers and sisters, that the prophetic word actually came out of the mouth of a Levite? What are Levites for? Levites are priests, right? They are the people who bring worship to God. And, and this is actually a descendant of Asaph. Who is Asaph? Asaph is actually the psalmist of Israel. So as they were all waiting there, not knowing what to do, the Spirit of the Lord fell upon Zahaziel, who was actually a descendant of Asaph, the psalmist. And what this informs us is this. Out of a worshipful heart, God can speak forth His prophetic word. I have found that praise, prayer, and prophecies are inseparable. Every prophet I know are people of praise, people of prayer, people of intercession. And there's such a strong connection, actually, between worship and the prophetic. The worship and the prophetic cannot be divorced. The harp and the bow always come together. And that is why you remember an incident of, uh, that, that took place in the life of Elisha. Remember, Elisha was once caught on uh, to actually prophesy. You find this in incident in 2 Kings chapter 3. So what happened was, Elisha the prophet was summoned by the king at that time, and, and there was a, a collection of kings that were waiting to hear what God has to say about their situation. And so they call in the prophet Elisha. And then the king, uh, actually, the king called King Joram, who is actually an evil king, he commanded the prophet Elisha to prophesy. And what Elisha said to him was, I could not because I'm standing amongst evil people. But however, there was one king there that the prophet respected, and he was King Jehoshaphat, who was a good king. And, and so what, what, what did the prophet do? Now listen to what 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 has to say. Listen to this. Elisha said, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not even look at you or even notice you. But now, bring me a harpist. And while the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord then came upon Elisha, and then he said, this is what the Lord says. And then he began to prophesy. So what do you see here? What happened was, a bunch of kings are there. Most of them were wicked, except for one guy, Jehoshaphat. Elisha was commanded to prophesy. And then he said, I can't do it, because I'm in the presence, the spiritual atmosphere is just not right. But out of respect for Jehoshaphat, I am going to attempt to hear from the Lord and to speak to you. But what I would need is this, bring me a musician. Bring me a harpist. And then as the harpist begin to play, as worship ascends to the throne of God, next thing you know, heaven opens and a prophetic came into being. Are you with me? There is a huge connection between prophecy and worship. And we cannot divorce the two. So if we really want to see the prophetic uh, river flow in FCC, then we must learn to swim in this river of higher praise and deeper worship. We can never get to the place of becoming a prophetic people until we actually learn to worship God deeper than ever we have ever been before. Hello? Are you with me? We need this. Like Ezekiel, remember? We must learn to step deeper and deeper into that river of God. We start anchor deep, then knee deep, then waist deep. We must come to the place where we can no longer touch the ground. And then we begin to swim in the river of God. We must come to that place. And the Holy Spirit is inviting all of us, step deeper, step deeper into the prophetic river of praise. We have to break beyond the familiar confines of worship as we know it. 
Listen, we must break beyond that familiar confine of, uh, you know, too fast song, everybody clap and then dance and dance and dance. And then after that, three slow songs followed by 30 seconds of free worship and then MC gets up and lands the, the whole thing. And then we close in prayer. It, you can almost predict it. You can almost know that this is exactly how it's going to work. We must come to that place when the worship team becomes so one in the Spirit that they can allow the Holy Spirit to become the music director. Not the guy with the mic that's a music director. The Holy Spirit is the is is music director. And the Spirit can then decide. Now, we are, we are all there. The whole worship team, every one of us, waiting on what, the whole, what God wants to do. And we could be all, and we, we can have a set, we can have all things planned, but ultimately the Holy Spirit moves upon us. And then, then we, the next thing you know, one, we are just waiting on God, and we are, we're in free worship. The Holy Spirit may just decide, I want to review God's majesty. And then he moves upon the trumpeter, and the trumpeter begins to, 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 to play. Or God just begins to touch the hearts of the drummer, and he knows God wants to review his majesty, and then he goes on his drum. Are you following me? Or God may just decide, I want to bring forth the shalom of God, the peace of God. And then suddenly the string instruments will come. And then the sense of God's peace will flow in. And then the rest will just stop because they know that they know. It wasn't planned, but we know we are led by the Spirit. And then things begin to happen. We must reach the level where the pastoral leadership, the worship team, the intercessors, and the people all flow as one in the presence of the Lord. And we grow to this place where we depend on the Holy Spirit to govern the flow of the service and not just a run sheet or a program or a structure. And then we go beyond. But wait, wait, wait. Of course, we need to begin with structure. We need structure so that we develop the discipline. Okay, and once we develop the discipline, then we can allow innovation. We always start with discipline. And then we allow the discipline to then keep us within the right boundaries, and then the Holy Spirit is free to move. You see, and I think we need to develop that. We develop that personal, individual competency as a musician, as a singer, etc., and then we learn to flow together as one. Then I think we can break, you know, from the discipline of structure into the freedom of the Spirit. And the two can coexist together. I think structure and Spirit can coexist as one. What do you think? Then we had that freedom. It's exactly like playing any games, you know. Uh, I used to play badminton, uh, now not so good anymore. But one of the things you do in, in learning to play badminton is you must first master the footwork. You've got to know it's two steps this way and then two steps back and then two steps this way and that, that kind of stuff. You can cover the whole court once you get your footwork in place. And once you get the dis basic disciplines right, you get the footwork right, you are free to innovate. You don't get the footwork right, you can style, style, stylo, milo, and then you, after that, you're out of place. And then everybody gets you. See, the key is this, get the basic right. And once the basic is right, you can innovate. Worship is like that. See, and, and I think that's what we need. Then we can have both fluidity and innovation. And then the Holy Spirit is free. So what happened on that day was this. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Zahaziel, and then what came forth was what? A prophetic word. A prophetic word that gives them a blueprint for victory. And what is it based on? It is built on the foundation that the battle do not belong to us. The battle belongs to the Lord. That was God's prophetic word to them. And then the Israelites realized they need not fight in their own strength, but they just need to stand firm and see the deliverance of the Lord. And what they need to do is this, they need to praise the Lord. And can you imagine, that was their strategy. Their strategy was send the choir in front. Go fight this battle. Can you imagine, they are going to war not with soldiers in front, but they have all the singers and the musicians going in front. Does this make sense? Actually, it doesn't. It is almost like Australia is coming under attack by an enemy force. But instead of sending our special forces, we send the Sydney Symphony Orchestra in front. And then we got Justin Bieber standing in the front singing, Advance Australia Fair. And then you win, you know. You think you even stand a chance? But 
Second Chronicles 20 is exactly that scenario, except that they were not singing Advanced Australia Fair. They were singing, raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemy. They were singing, waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. That's what they were singing. And then next thing you know, Psalms 22, verse 2 and 3 says this, right? God inhabits the praises of his people. And as they were worshipping, as they were worshipping, then what happened? God came down. God inhabited the praises of his people. Do you know the word inhabit in the Hebrew? It actually can be translated, God sits on the praises of his people. So what are we doing every time we come together and worship every Sunday? We are building a throne. Every time you raise your worship, heartfelt worship to God, you are building a throne for God to come and sit on. And how many of you know where God sits, He rules. If God is sitting in our midst today, He will rule from here. And then signs, wonders, and miracles can happen. Anything can happen when, the, when, when God is sitting upon the praises of His people. See, and the powers of darkness were thrown into disarray because of that. And as they begin to praise and worship God, the powers of darkness were thrown into disarray. They started killing one another. And the enemies were so confused by this weapon of faith-filled praise that it penetrated the spiritual atmosphere and strongholds began to come down. And victory came to the people of God. And when the worshippers went forth, the presence of the Lord went before them, clearing the forces of darkness. And the praises of God ascends the heavenlies, and satanic forces were dispelled and scattered. I tell you, praise and worship wrought a complete, total, irrevocable victory over the enemies that day. And he can do the same today. Praises dethrone Satan by enthroning God. Now, you may ask, so how does it work actually? Uh, we know that this was what happened on earth, but what, how, how did it actually happen? I want to take you now into the unseen realm and perhaps give us a, a, a glimpse into how does it actually work. So allow me to do a little bit of teaching here uh, by painting a picture for you of what took place in the spiritual realm when we offer to God heartfelt, faithful, passionate worship. Okay, now to do that, can I first turn you to 2 Corinthians chapter 12? I want to, you to read the testimony of the Apostle Paul. This is what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 2 to 4. Listen to what Paul says. I know a man in Christ, which is actually referring to himself. He was too humble to say, I'm the one. So he said, I, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up in paradise. And then he heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. So here, the Apostle Paul describes a man that could, you know, which I, I believe is referring to himself, who was caught up to the third heaven. And when he was in the third heaven, he saw awesome things in the spiritual realm that he says, I'm not permitted to tell you what they are. Okay, but I saw amazing things there. Now, I believe that the third heaven is actually referring to the place where the throne of God is. Now, and I have a very simple idea. If Paul says that there is a third heaven, and the third heaven is where you find the throne of God. Okay, so this is the third heaven. And he says, in the third heaven, I met God and I heard incredible things I'm not even permitted to tell you. So if there is a third heaven, my simple mind tells me that somewhere there must be a second heaven. And if there's a second heaven, somewhere there must be a first heaven. What do you think? Does that make sense? You cannot say that, that oh, I have, I, uh, this is my third brother when you got no other. No other brothers, right? So if you say there's a third heaven, there must be a second heaven, there must be a first heaven. So question is this, if the third heaven is where the throne of God is, then where is the second heaven? Where is the first heaven? I believe the first heaven actually 
um, from scriptures, I believe the first heaven must be the atmospheric heaven. That means it's the, it's the part of, the, of, of where we see the moon, uh, where we see the stars, where we see clouds, where we see the sun. Does that make sense? It's uh, what we call the atmospheric heaven. Okay, and in Psalms chapter 8, verse 3, for example, says this, the psalmist says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, that must be the first heaven, that which is visible to our naked eyes. Okay, so that's the first heaven. The third heaven is where God is, on the throne of God. So question is, where is the second heaven then? And what goes on in the second heaven? And this is where I want to take you now to the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel is an amazing prophet. He saw things that none of us could understand. And I'm going to invite you to go with me now to Daniel chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, can you go there uh, with me for a while? Are you following me so far? Okay, follow me. We go to Daniel chapter 10. I'm going to read for you a few verses uh, from there. Firstly, let's read the first four verses. This is what happened. In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belsager. And his message was true, and it concerned a great war. And the understanding of the message came to him in a vision. And at that time, I, Daniel, moaned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips. In other words, he was fasting. And I used no lotion at all until the three weeks were over. But on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the river, uh, the great river, the Tigris, that's where he looked up and he saw a man dressed in linen. In other words, he had an encounter with an angelic being. Okay, so he was praying and then after 24 days, finally, he had an encounter with this angelic being. Okay, and what did the angel say to him? You go down a little bit to verse 10. Okay, second, Daniel chapter 10, now verse 10. And this is what happened. A hand touched me, Daniel said, and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to tell you and to stand up for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. And then the angel continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourselves before your God, your words were heard. Notice, when, when was his words heard? From the first day, okay? And then he says, I have come now in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me for 21 days. And then Micah, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. And now I've come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. Now, we're not too concerned about what the vision is because that's not our focus today. But I wanted to just bring this up to show you something because I believe what happened was this. Where was Daniel praying from? He's praying from the earth, right? So Daniel prayed. He was fasting, he was praying, waiting upon God and trying to understand a vision that he saw. He said, God, show me what it is. So he prayed to the Lord. Okay, and when was his, when was his prayer heard? From the day that he, he prayed. From the first day he prayed, the prayer was already heard. And the, the, angelic, the, the, the angel was already dispatched to actually bring him the answer. Then what happened was, the, the Lord just opened up the windows of, uh, of, of heaven for a while and gave us a glimpse into the unseen realm. So the angel immediately came down with the answer. But he was, he didn't, the answer didn't get to him until the 24th day. Why? Because for 21 days, there was a battle that took place between that angel and the prince of Persia. So it cannot be talking about a physical prince, it's talking about in, but because it's spirit to spirit. So there were angelic beings that are ruling over Persia. So I actually believe that there are princes over cities. There is a strong man that rules over Perth. There are strong men that rules over Melbourne, Sydney, over Singapore. There are strong men that rules. And this, these are angelic beings, a whole city in bondage. And what happened was in these 21 days, there was a battle that took place. Where was this battle fought? 
here in the second heaven. There was a battle that took place between the forces of darkness and the, the angels of God. And we were given a glimpse. Now, these are things we cannot see, but we were open up. The curtain was pulled back a little bit. We were given a glimpse into what actually happened. And at the end of 21 days, this messenger wasn't able to defeat the strong man. So what happened? Michael, the archangel, came. Hey, do you all believe in angels? If you believe in angels, this is not too far-fetched for you. It's just that you can't see it. But it's there, it's happening. And angel, the Michael, the archangel, came and actually helped. And then as a result, the messenger can bring the message. At the end of 24th day, they receive, he received the message. So what's my point? My point is, every time there are unseen battles going on in that realm, it's just that because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. There's warfare going on in the heavenlies. And every praise, worship, and intercession that you raise, there are ammunition that we send into the unseen realm that actually cause things to happen. And people, I want to challenge you not to become so earthbound, not to become so cerebral that all we can see is what we can see and understand. There are unseen things that is happening. And we are part of that battle. We need to realize it. Nothing happens for 21 days, but it was battle going on. And we need to understand that. And, and the, the day that the, we, 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 we pray, God already heard. Things are already happening. But it takes time sometimes. We pray through, right? That's what we're talking about. We pray through so that we can get the breakthrough. And there is no breakthrough. And we pressed in. See, and it was a, what, what is all this? It's actually a description of what takes place when there's warfare in the heavenly realm. And here's the key. The third heaven is the throne of God. It's where throne, the throne of God is. The first heaven is the atmospheric heaven. But the second heaven is where warfare is being waged. And the Apostle Paul describes that warfare this way in Ephesians 6 verse 12. He says, for our struggle... Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces in where? In the heavenly realms. That's what Ephesians is talking about. We are in this battle, and we fight it in the unseen realm. And here in the second heaven, Satan rules as the prince of the air. That's how he's being described, right? He is the prince of the air. So when, if he's the prince, then where is his throne? Where does he reign from? The second heaven. That's where he reigns from. And here in the second heaven, Satan waged war against the people of God. And every time we lay praises, prayer, worship, intercession under the throne of God, they ascend like ammunition into the heavenly realms and cause confusion in the enemy's camp. We've got to recognize that. See, so Psalms 149. You're following me so far? Now stay with me. Huh? Psalms 149, verse 6 to verse 9. Listen to what it says here. Let the high praises of God, the psalmist said, be in their mouths and the two-edged sword in their hand to execute judgment or, or vengeance against the heathen, punishments upon the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. By who? It cannot be physical. How do you use praises to, to buy a physical king? We're talking about strong men. We're talking about angelic hosts, spiritual forces of darkness. We use our high praises of God and the two-edged sword in our hand. We bind these forces of darkness and their nobles, their fetters of iron, execute upon them the judgment written. This is the honour we have as His saints. Praise be to the Lord. And here the psalmist tells us the high praises of God and a two-edged sword in our hand. What a beautiful combination. The praises of God and the Word of God. Put the two together. We have what it takes to bind forces of darkness. We have what it takes to pull down strongholds. Put the two together. What does that mean? What it means is this. The best way to praise God is to praise Him with His own Word. Take the Word of God and pray it back to Him. Take the Word of God and praise Him with His revelation of Himself. And every time we do that, we have everything it takes 
to bind the forces of darkness. Oh, put the two together. You know, praises and the Word of God. And you know what? I think there is, if there is a high praise, uh, my simple mind also tells me there must be a low praise also. Which means to say there are praises and there are high praises. And my challenge to every one of us here is every week we come, let us resolve in our heart. We will give to Him the highest praise. Don't give Him half past six, ah, just mouth the words thing. But give Him the best we got. Give Him high praise, exuberant praise, extravagant worship. And every time we do that, we confuse the enemy camp. You take your situation and you sing over it and you see what God will do. And together with the two-edged sword, you know, and the high praises of God, they become mighty weapons that can wreak havoc in the kingdom of darkness. You praise Him with His word. It's a double whammy for the kingdom of darkness. That's why, you know, do you remember the days when we were singing scripture in songs? You know what we're doing? We're literally taking the Psalms in the Bible and putting them to music and singing it like the people of Israel did in the past. And those were the, the days when worship was being restored to the church, big time. It was so God-centered. It was so God-centric that it really bring down the presence of God. And no wonder we have those signs, wonders, and miracles happening left, right, and center. Because this is what God desires too. And my challenge to the worship team is this. You want to write songs, then take the, take the Word of God and put it to music. And we've got great songs that can come out for the church again. Then it's not so me-centered. It's so God-centered. And we can see awesome things happen. It's time, I think, for us to come back to some of this ancient path and say, God, put the high praises of God and the double-edged sword in my hand and start a fresh revolution again. And when we praise God with His Word, it becomes especially powerful, even devastating, you know, to the powers of darkness. And this is where worship and warfare came together as a powerful prophetic sign of what God is doing in His end-time church. You know what? When I study the, the, the history of Israel, I saw the same combination, you know, of worship and warfare. They always come together. You see, in Israel, uh, listen to me for a while, okay? In Israel, there are two things that bring the, the nation together. There are, there are two things, two events that always bring the people of God together. The two events are this. Number one is the feast. All the feasts of Israel bring the people together. The other is the war. When there's war, they all come together. It's the feast and the war. The feast is a time of worship and celebration, but war is a time of battle. And on both occasions, whenever they gather, whether it's for the feast or for wars, you always find two groups of people. Basically, the singers, musicians, and dancers, and then the soldiers. They all come together. And particularly on both occasions, whether it's the feast or the wars, the glory of the Lord will descend. So if I can just take a brief moment, the feasts are times of worship, okay? And the nation of Israel gathers three times a year at least during the major feasts of Passover, Tabernacles, and, and, and Pentecost. And when they come together, they march as a mighty procession towards Mount Zion, okay? That's where they go to worship. Remember, we talked about the songs of ascent. And that's what they were doing. They come together to celebrate the feast in the presence of God, and then they take this journey together, and they go up to the mountain. So Psalms of 120 all the way to Psalms 134 is a record of all the songs that they sing as they ascend the mountain of the Lord. So you read it carefully, it starts at a very low point in Psalms 120. It starts at a very low point when the people of God came and they were crying out to God. Psalms 120 begins like this. You know, if it says, I call on the Lord in my distress. In other words, they were really down. They were in trouble. And he said, Lord, I call upon you in my distress. And by the time you go to Psalms 121, he says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? So you can imagine, that's what they were doing. 
And then by the time they reach Psalms, uh, uh, as they draw nearer and nearer, in Psalms 122, right, the next verse is, the uh, next Psalm, it becomes more positive. Now it says, I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. So they're beginning, the spirit is beginning to lift, right? By the time you get to Psalms 125, they were encouraging one another now. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. Say so they are lifting up. Psalms 126, when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we are like men who dream. Our thoughts were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Wow, lifting even higher now. And by the time you reach Psalms 134, they climaxed and say, praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. They finally arrived at the temple. What a beautiful prophetic picture of the New Testament church coming together in corporate worship and celebration Sunday after Sunday. You come in this morning, you may come with all of your trouble, you may come with all of your, your the, the things that we had to deal with, come down low, but by the time you get out, you should be Psalms 134. Because praise and worship lift you up into that heavenly realm. You confuse the enemy and you walk out knowing that God will fight on your behalf. That's what we're doing. You come in with that. And we come in bound, but we go out liberated and set free. That's the power of praise. And then we have the wars. There are times of battle. You study how they do it. You know, when the tribes of Israel marched out to war, the first tribe that leads them right in front is the tribe of Judah. Judah means praise. Praise and worship leads the way as they enter into battle. And this is what we need to learn to do. Amen. Judges, you know, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, you take, for example, listen to this. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go out and fight for us against the Canaanites? And the Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. And as God begin, as, the, as, the, as they go, God moves ahead of them, trampling the enemy forces before them. Hallelujah. What a picture for all of us. Can you take a little bit more? Okay, you take a little bit more, can I? Just a little bit more. The prophet Isaiah, you cannot miss this, describes both the feasts and the wars. He takes both of the feasts and the war, and he put it together in Isaiah 30. And then you see the dynamics of this. What really happens? Isaiah 30, you look at verse 29 to 30. Listen to this. Isaiah 30 verse 29 says, And you will sing as on the night. You celebrate a holy festival. That means the feast. Your hearts will rejoice as when the people go up with flutes to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. So these verses describe the feast time, okay? Full of rejoicing, full of celebration. And then you read the next two verses, 31 and 32. goes on to say this. The Lord will cause men to hear His majestic voice, make them see His arm coming down with raging anger and consuming fire, with cloudbursts, thunderstorm and hail. The voice of the Lord will shatter Assyria, and with His scepter He will strike them down. Every stroke the Lord lays on them with His punishing rod will be the music will be to the music of tambourines and harps as he fights them in battle with the blows of his arms. Now, what do you see here? Here you see warfare. The enemy is Assyria being scattered. How? Through the rod of God. How? Through the, through the striking of the instruments. Through the music that was played. You know, listen, with every sound of the tambourine, and for that matter, with every sound of the drum or the bass guitar today, or the keyboard, with every sound of the musical instrument, there's an invasion into the kingdom of darkness. It's striking something in the unseen realm. It is a prophetic reminder to all of us there is power released into the spiritual realm each time we praise God, both with music as well as with, with voice. Something happens. It is a blow to the strongholds of darkness. Brothers and sisters, we must see this. I hope I'm communicating with you that we cannot just come and sing songs. This is not a singspiration. This is a time of worship. This is not Christian karaoke. Something powerful happens in the spiritual realm. 
Every time the drummer hits something, we striking the powers of darkness. You sing it and you declare it. That's why when you sing, Waymaker, Miracle Worker, you're emphasizing it because you know it's happening. Something opens up. But you just sing it like Singspiration and karaoke, then nothing happens. If we do it without understanding, nothing much happens. It's just music and song. But we do it with spiritual understanding. It breaks something in the spiritual realm. You, you, you read Isaiah 31, verse 8 and 9. It says, Assyria will fall by a sword that is not of man. It's a sword not of mortals will devour them. They will flee before the sword and their young men will, put, will be put to forced labor. Their stronghold will fall because of terror. At the sight of your better standard, their commanders will panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Notice how the enemies were terrified. By what? By the sight of the better standards. That means these are the banners that the people of Israel will carry into war. And the enemy just look at the banner. They got frightened already. And today, we also strike fear in the hearts of the enemy. Every time we lift up Jehovah Nisi, our banner, we lift up Jesus Christ, and it frightens the daylights out of the powers of darkness. So they, we should not be afraid of them. They should be afraid of us. Don't miss that. And all these verses remind us that victory is ours if we recognize the battle belongs to the Lord. Spiritual warfare is not focused on what the devil is doing. It's focused on who our God is. You see, today we remember the battle is not yours. The battle belongs to the Lord. And the Jehovah, uh, Jehoshaphat says, my eyes are upon you. And I believe that God will restore to the last day church the spiritual principles of the feast and the wars of Israel. And we recapture it again. And don't never forget this, the worshipping saint, which is all of us, are also the mightiest warriors. The worshipping saints are the mightiest warriors. And that's why you find in First Chronicles 25.1, I love this, you know, when King David was picking musicians for his temple, King David was picking musicians for his temple. And when he was picking his musician, do you know who was there by his side to help pick the musician? I found it actually in 1 Chronicles 25.1. David, together with the commanders of the army. Hey, that's interesting, right? Why should the commanders of the army be involved in picking the psalmist? You should get the musicians to do it. You should get the worship director to do it. But he brought in the commander of the army as well. Why? Because warfare and worship are one. They come together. See, and David together with the commanders of the army then set apart some of the sons of Asaph, Hermon, Jadutan for the ministry of prophesying accompanied by harps, lyres, and cymbal. Again, the close connection between singers, warriors, worship, warfare. Isn't it interesting? Remember we read earlier, 2 Chronicles 20, the, the strategy for war was revealed to a psalmist. Not the commander. It's revealed to the psalmist. Again, the connection between warfare and worship. So brothers and sisters of FCC, I want to challenge us. We resolve to let our praises become a weapon in the second heaven. Every week when we come together, let's come and give Him the highest praise. And then we, we see it in, our, in the eyes of our spirit that warfare is happening and confusion is, is created in the enemy's camp because God's people are worshipping Him in spirit and in truth. One last verse I leave with you. Revelations 8. Let's all read this verses together, verse 3 to 5. This is again the unseen realm. Listen to what is recorded here. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. And on the golden altar before the throne, the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer filled with the fire from the altar and he hauled it, hurled it, threw it at the earth and then came peals of thunder, rumbling, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Again, we are given a glimpse into the unseen realm of the heavenlies. 
want you to know, brothers and sisters, that there in the center of heaven, there is a censer. There is being filled, you know, with the prayers and praises of the people of God. And with faith-filled prayer and praise ascending to God, it causes activity in the heavenly realms and it can have impact on earthly affairs. I believe the day will come that as we continue to resolve to send our praises, our worship, our prayers as weapons of warfare, it will fill up that censer in heaven. And when that censer in heaven is filled, the angel will take it and he will hold it at the earth and revival can break out. We are filling up the censers of heaven today. Every time we praise, worship, intercede, we stand on behalf of our nation and we pray. We are filling up that censer. And one day, that censer will be filled. And when it is filled, it will tilt. And then revival can come forth. We're waiting for the day when Perth can see a revival. Australia can see a revival. But we need to fill up that censer praise, worship, intercession and then we pour it out and anything can happen heaven will invade earth and we will see things happen, amen would you stand with me this, this morning hallelujah, thank you Lord thank you Lord, I want you to uh, we, let's, let's stand in the presence of God, we respect his presence here in our midst Except we really, really need to. I'd like us to stay where we are and let's just respond to the word of the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. May the Holy Spirit come and open our minds' eyes so that we can see into the, in the realm of the Spirit the songs that we sing, the worship that we bring. It does something in the unseen realm. With every strike of the instrument, we inflict something against the kingdom of darkness. We all come this morning, they can have different situations and circumstances that we are going through. But today we can raise a hallelujah over your circumstances and your situation. And we can sing over it and trust God to intervene. And we wage warfare in the unseen realm. Thank you, Lord. Let's lift our hearts and our hands to the Lord and let's sing. Hallelujah.